You are listening to a message from Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Our passion is to experience and express grace. Join us. Yeah, and some of the messaging we had with Will this morning, I think he's coming up with some new ideas of ways to enhance what we do here. And he was talking about the worship service that he went through this morning. It lasted for four and a half hours. So just be on your guard. Um, I want you to open your Bibles to Habakkuk. Some of you are going to have to tear the pages apart in this section. If you want to know where it is, it's, it's right after Nahum. Turn to Matthew and make a left. And go back five books and you'll find it. There haven't been many books in the Bible that I have repeated through sermons. In fact, I don't think there are any except for Luke going through it here, except Habakkuk. And this is actually the third time through. Because what I find here in Habakkuk is a very highly relevant message for us. It's one of those minor prophets um, that, unfortunately, we don't read very often. But I think he speaks to us in so many wonderful ways. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where God shook you down to the foundations of all that you thought in all that you believed about him. I mean, maybe even we think about that now when you look at things on a societal level, when you see the way our society is going and you see, you know, it seems like evil is running rampant, righteousness is kind of being pushed out of the picture and everything seems to be out of control, and we wonder, okay, God, what are your promises here? What, what are you doing? Maybe it's on a personal level where God did something in your life that was beyond your understanding and your ability to grasp. You know, on whatever level that maybe God has ever done this, Sometimes he comes and does these things that totally changes everything. It changes the way that we think about him. It changes the way that we relate to him. It changes how we think about ourselves, about his promises. It just shapes everything. And God does, has a way of bringing us to that place in undoing so much of what we think. I think that a lot of us have this view of God that's very tame, it's very manageable, it's very predictable, it's very orderly, and functions on this basis of a nice set of well-defined rules and categories. And we like when God is this way, because we like life that's predictable, we like 
life that is manageable, and we like it when we can use these nice formulas and everything is predictable. You know, if I do this, if I do this, then I'm going to get this. If I read the Bible to my kids as they're younger and we do family devotions, and then my kids are going to turn out great. If I give my money when I'm supposed to, then God is going to bless me and make sure that I have everything that I need. God is going to honor what I do for him. And after all, we've got all these promises in Scripture that tell us that those very things. But sometimes we find out that this God that we worship is not that kind of God. Sometimes he just will not and refuses to fit into our formulas, our predictable, manageable ideas of what he is supposed to, supposed to do. Sometimes those who tithe lose their jobs. Sometimes really good parents have children who are addicts. And what do we do then? (laughs) In fact, I would actually go on to say, if your picture of God is orderly, predictable, neat, and tidy, you do not know him very well. He is not a tame God. He is very unpredictable. And he lives outside of our categories in our boxes that we create for him. Let me tell you a little bit about how I was faced with this dilemma. And this was as a pastor. Back in the summer of 2009, I was sitting in a courtroom. Uh, We had returned from Hungary after being there for six years, a year or so before. My oldest daughter had gotten married to a guy that we had questions about. And now, we were sitting in a courtroom in rural Kansas where he had been falsely accused of a horrific crime. And the jury was about to come back with its verdict. And I remember that of even praying, we had all these people praying for us, we had all of these people, you know, supporting us and behind, you know, just pleading for God to be who he's promised he would be. A God of justice, a God of mercy. And I also remember that there's one thing that I absolutely felt that I could not stand, I could not handle, was to look into my daughter's eyes and hear the word guilty. Because my daughter was a new parent. I had an infant son, not quite a year old, 
And this was not the life that I had thought would be for my daughter. I couldn't imagine her being a single parent. I couldn't imagine my grandson having a father who was a convicted felon. I couldn't imagine. And to deal with the pain of her face. And so when the judge pronounced the words, guilty, everything I knew about God went out the window. I didn't know how to relate to him anymore. I didn't know how to pray to him anymore. I didn't know what to expect from him anymore. I was dealing with a God I did not know. And at the moment, I wasn't sure I liked it. He did not answer my prayers the way I thought he should have. Instead, he brought to me some of the deepest pain I have ever felt. And how am I supposed to relate to a God who is like that? Well, see, really, this is the story of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophecy that is very different from all the other prophecies. It's a dialogue. So many of the other prophecies, you have a prophet coming with these words of judgment and calls to repentance for the nation of Israel so they could come back to the God that they were supposed to be worshiping. But Habakkuk is really a conversation between two very intimate friends. And it is a declaration, in a sense, of what it means to walk in faith with our Creator and our Redeemer. So for those of us who struggle with what God is doing in our lives and maybe struggling in our world Habakkuk, I think, is a great place for us to learn how to relate to him in faith. How to relate in faith to a God who will not fit in our box. So what I want to do, I want us just to go through this dialogue in the first chapter up through uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. And let's see how this all conversation sets up. Let me read verses 1 through 4. You can see it there on the screen. It's the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, 
And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk comes to God, opens up this dialogue with a complaint. And he's confused. He knows who God is. He knows what God has promised. He knows what he has taught. But what he sees before his face is not what he thinks should be. Because he thinks what he's saying here is that God, what it seems here, is that you have put me in a place with all these wicked people, and these are your people. They are perverting justice. Righteousness is basically being pushed out of society, and you're making me see this, but all the while, it appears like you're blind. That you don't see it, because if you did see it, you would be doing something but you're not doing anything that I can see. And why? (coughs) In fact, it's gotten so bad in Habakkuk's mind that he said that the wicked surround the righteous. They're hemmed in. They seem to be more numerous than the good folks. And there's no justice. But notice too how he begins this whole dialogue. He says, how long do I cry for to you for help? This is not the first time Habakkuk has prayed this. He has been going to God over and over and over again. In this prayer, he feels like is falling on deaf ears. And so he's confused. He's, and he's going to God and, and wrestling with him and saying, okay, what? What's going on here? This is not right. Well, then we get to verse 5, and God comes and answers him. Look what he says. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. And they laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the winds and go on. Guilty men whose God, whose own might is their God. Wow. God answers Habakkuk and basically says, oh, you think I'm not doing anything? Oh, I am. I'm doing something beyond wonderful. 
I am right now at work raising up the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, all the Babylonians, and they're going to come and they're going to bring justice. <laughs> God is bringing justice on Israel and all the, weakness, the wickedness that was there. But what was surprising to Habakkuk now is that he's using the Babylonians to do it. To do his work. This arrogant, godless, extremely violent people are going to flood into Israel and take care of business. Wow. What do you think Habakkuk thought of that? <laughs> well, we look at verse 12 through 17 and we see. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than in to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at nations and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing Nations forever? Habakkuk's response, if he, wasn't, if he wasn't confused before, he is now. Because he goes to God, God, he says, God, what's going on? And God says, I've got a plan, but if I tell you, you won't believe me. And Habakkuk basically says, tell me. And God tells him. And Habakkuk says, I don't believe you. God tells him, and what he seems to be doing is totally opposite of what Habakkuk has known. And he is more than troubled. In fact, his response here is quite brutally honest and very strong. We can even say that Habakkuk is ticked off. And he cannot understand how God could do such a thing. How could you take these arrogant, violent, pagan people and use them to judge those who are more righteous than they are? That you would use them to come and destroy us? And his confusion gets the best of him and he just goes to God and pours out his anguish in a flood. 
And then we have the conclusion. We see verse 1 of chapter 2, where he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk doesn't know what God is going to say, but he's already building a defense to argue his case. I love this dialogue, especially because God has shown himself so far outside the categories that I had for him. But it also, and because of that, it shows us a pathway of dealing with God in faith. And Habakkuk's response, his dealing with God, is very much in faith. But we have to see how that looks. So first, what is faith's response to confusion? How do you respond in such a situation where God is so confusing right now? You know, what do you do when God throws you for a loop? What do you do when you get confused? How do you respond when you are in pain or when you are perplexed with all that God is bringing into your life, at, all this stuff at the hands of God, how do you relate to him? How do you respond to him? Well, there's a couple of ways. A lot of us just run. But we run in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we just flat run. God, you don't make any sense. Christianity is confusing. It's not what it should be. I'm out of here. Forget it. God, if this is what you do, and you don't fit into this box the way I think, well, forget it. I'm gone. In our frustration, we just run and leave. We'll go find another religion. We'll go find another philosophy. We'll go find something else, some other system to help us grapple with this hard reality of life. We just run because this God that we thought that was so great and loving is now hard. We don't want anything to do with him. And so in our hardship, we just leave. But there's another way we run. And that is, we run straight into our religion. Straight into our Christian practice. And that, what that looks like is, we say, okay, you know, we we stick to what we know, to the doctrines that we have, and we may vocalize them, we may say, yeah, I know, God is sovereign. 
And we continue to put the smiles on our faces. We continue to act in all of our religious niceties. But God is nowhere to be found. He is not anywhere close. We have basically shielded ourselves from this God by our religious practice to avoid that confusion and perplexity and pain that comes when we really get to know him. But we're not getting to know him. We're hiding in a system that we think will make sense of things. But unfortunately, it will leave us empty. So whether we are running off to some other philosophy or we're running back deeper into our religion, we're still running. We're running away. You know, some of us, again, we just run. This is not how Habakkuk deals with this situation. Even from the very beginning, when Habakkuk was perplexed, he ran, but he didn't run away. Where does he go with his complaint? He goes to God. And when it gets worse, what does he do? He keeps going to God. And it's like he's entering into this, this wrestling match with God. Because he wants to know. And that's where he goes. He prays. He doesn't just shut down, but he prays. His prayer, in some ways, on the surface, is disrespectful. It is harsh. It's in your face. But it is the prayer of faith. Because here he's demonstrating that it was God was the one he trusted. And that's where he was going. He didn't understand anything. He didn't know what he was doing. But he knew who he trusted. And he was going there. I actually think this is the way prayer should be. It's not very common We don't pray like this very often. I think we're afraid to. To go before the holy God and just pour out your anger and your confusion and tell him, this is God, you're not being fair here. To really be honest with him. I know one thing, in my relationship with my wife, the last thing that she wants is me to shut down and not say anything. That's the last thing. Because she has no idea. Well, she's got a pretty good idea of what's going on. I'm ticked off. But in a relationship, it does not help anything. In fact, it says something very terrible about the state of that relationship when I get to a place of maybe anger and confusion and I just suck it up and I don't talk. And that's not what she wants. 
Because that means I have run away. She wants to engage. She wants me to trust her enough to give her my heart. Let me tell you something. God is no different. Yes, he is the Holy One. Yes, he is our King. He is your Father. He is a father that says, look, you don't understand? Come here. Let's talk about this. Trust me with it. And that is the prayer of faith. And let me tell you something. Whatever you say, God can take it. (laughs) He already knows it's there. What he wants is us to engage our hearts in our relationship and not just our actions or our heads. Engage your heart, pour out your heart. He wants your heart and he can deal with it. Trust him enough to wrestle with him, to get to know him. That is the response of faith. And to that prayer of faith, God shows his grace to Habakkuk. Instead of just smashing Habakkuk for his insolence, because he's so brash and irreverent, God chooses to enter into the wrestling match with him. He comes down to Habakkuk, he reveals himself in a very gentle and a very gracious way. We might think it wasn't so gentle, but oh, it was. But it is a wrestling match. I know if you remember the story of Jacob. Go back and read Genesis 32. And in the story, Jacob is perplexed. He is coming back to Canaan, coming back from living with Laban, his brother-in-law, being abused, living this life of really deception and so forth. He's about to be confronted with Esau, who's coming to him with a big horde of people, thinking that Esau is all ticked off at him, and Jacob doesn't know where to turn. But he meets this angel of the Lord in the wilderness. And with that angel... Jacob wrestled all night long because he wanted one thing. He says, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. And the amazing thing about that is, is that that was God himself, a pre-incarnate appearance of God who allowed this man to wrestle with him all night long. I mean, that one should have been over quick. But it wasn't. God invited Jacob to engage. And when you wrestle, (laughs) you have to get really close. And so finally at the end, 
You know, he could have just done away with Jacob, but he didn't. And Jacob said, you know, I will not let go until you bless me. And the Lord touched his hip, touched the socket of it. Something happened to it. It wouldn't function anymore. And God blessed him. God met with Jacob, wrestled with him, and blessed him. Jacob limped from there on out. But he had wrestled with God and had come to know him in a way he had never known him before. And Jacob was a whole new man, in a sense, after that. In so many ways. God is... We have to know this about God and why he brings about these situations. He is in pursuit of our hearts. He is not content just with the performance of religion. He is not content with just right doctrine. He is not content with these boxes that we live in, that we create, that hides him more than reveals him. He says, no, you're going to get to know me. And so he comes and tears our boxes apart in pursuit of our hearts. He is more willing to answer prayers than we are willing to pray them. He is more willing to engage with us than we are with him. But when we do, we will never be the same. We will come to know this God and the wonders of what he does in a whole new level that looking back on all of the pain, all of the struggle, we would not trade for the world. The last thing I would want to do is to go through that whole scenario again in that Kansas courtroom. But I wouldn't trade it. Because now there's this God who's so much bigger, so much more passionate about me and relationship, being in relationship with me. I wouldn't give up for the world. But there's something else that we need to see about God's grace in this text. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Where he says, You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, to Habakkuk, this was scandalous that God would do that. But Habakkuk had no idea how far God would go with that. He had no idea. Because in some years in the future, that verse was going to be lived out in a whole new way that would have totally amazed and astonished Habakkuk. In Acts 2, 22 and 23, we hear these words. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, God didn't just work that way with the Chaldeans. He didn't just bring judgment on Israel. He went a whole lot farther. He used wicked men and put his own son, the Holy One of Israel, to a cruel death. His son was unjustly tried and convicted of no crime and then was condemned to die when he was righteous. And this is how far God will go in pursuit of your heart. He doesn't just put us through the ringer to get our attention. He put himself through the ringer to not just get our attention, but to buy us as his own. He crushed evil. So that we can now relate to him. We can now approach him. We can now honestly wrestle with him and find in his face not the scowl of an angry judge, but the smile of a beloved father. God is in pursuit of your hearts. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know how he's doing it. I do know he is doing it. But I also know this. Your place of hope is not to run away, but it is to engage and let him expand your knowledge of all that he is in all that he has done in Christ. You may limp a little bit, but you'll also find joy unlike you've never known before. So run to him. Run to him. Let's pray. Father, We want to know you. We, we need to know you. And we don't. And maybe you're in the process of showing us that. But Father, I pray, would you pursue us? Would you come and draw us deeper into the knowledge of all that you are so that our rejoicing would be made so much fuller and the glory 
that we declare about you would be so much more convincing. Father, come. Make yourself known. And then enable us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us online at southwood.org.